Scholars Unbound is a bi-monthly podcast or video series that showcases the voices of scholars who know no boundaries when it comes to the pursuit of knowledge. You will hear insights from their experiences as international scholars and how these influence their research, hoping to inspire future scholars to be fearless, global, and unbound. I'm your host, Dalia Simangon. Hi everyone, welcome to the Scholars Unbound podcast and today is a special episode for the podcast because we're taking a little bit of break from my personal reflections and if you remember in the past episodes, we talk about publishing an academic book from editing a volume to publishing your sole authored book and also in the past, we heard from editors about some tips on how to write an effective book proposal. So this episode is a fitting follow-up to that because our guest will talk about her experience publishing her book. Our guest is Dr. Denasri Jayaram. She's a research fellow at Santabok Block. I hope I pronounced that correctly, but if not, I apologize. Um, and she's also a guest researcher at Freie Universität Berlin under the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation's International Climate Protection Fellowship. She's an assistant professor at the Department of Geopolitics and International Relations and co-coordinator for the Center for Climate Studies at Manipal Academy of Higher Education in Karnataka in India. She is also a research fellow of Earth System Governance, a member of Climate Security Expert Network, and a member of Planet Politics Institute, of which I'm also very delighted to be a member of. Thank you, Danashri, for taking some of your time and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dalia. Let's start with your research. You have a wide range of really interesting research interests, but they all relate to um, important issues related to climate change and also to peace and security. Could you tell us briefly about your research work? So my, my research is broadly, you can say it belongs to global environmental governance and environmental security studies. So my PhD was about military dimensions of environmental security from an Indian perspective, where I tried to explore different perspectives on uh, environmental security within India and how does the military really respond to these challenges uh, or how do they perceive these challenges within India and also the broader subcontinent. Because as we know, in South Asia, a lot of transboundary environmental challenges are not just restricted to one country. Uh, They're common to all the countries and there are a lot of transboundary resource issues and other uh, challenges which exist in the region. But uh, environmental security is just one part of my research. I also work on climate diplomacy of emerging economies, primarily India, also China, Brazil, and South Africa, which is something that I worked on for my postdoc as well. Climate diplomacy, as in just not just in practice, but also theoretically and conceptually, what does it mean and uh, how has it evolved over a period of time, especially from uh, the perspective of the Global South, something that I am also interested in. And I have, uh, of course, sort of expanded my research into gender now, gender and climate diplomacy. Uh, I think this is an underexplored area in international relations and also climate diplomacy related uh, research. So how is gender really mainstreamed into intergovernmental processes of climate change is something that I'm looking at right now. 
Thank you, Danasri, for that. And I want to congratulate you on your recently published book with Routledge titled Climate Diplomacy and Emerging Economies. So um, could you share with us your experience in publishing this book? Maybe a little bit about, you know, from the conceptualization until how you approach the publishers and maybe how you promoted it as well. This book is something that I conceptualized as a part of a postdoc application. I applied for the Swiss Government Excellence Scholarship to work at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. As I was looking at various issues to work on, uh, yeah, one of the ideas, of course, I had was on climate diplomacy uh, rather than climate security, because I felt this is something that was more amenable to some of the topics that were being explored in University of Lausanne at that point in time. And I felt that there was not much research done on emerging economies as a whole. Like, of course, individually, you have studies of Brazil, China, South Africa, India, but like more like a comparison between them and also looking much deeper into India's own climate diplomacy positions from especially the Copenhagen summit, uh, which was a landmark event as uh, when we look at it from a geopolitical point of view as well to uh, the Madrid summit. So I was very interested in looking at the role of ideas in shaping or um, conditioning the positions of the emerging economies in the climate change negotiations in particular, but also, as I mentioned, climate diplomacy itself has evolved over a period of time. It's no longer just about the negotiations. It's also about bilateral, multilateral, plurilateral, and other sorts of partnerships between countries it can also be a very informal way of addressing climate change through different groups, for instance, like G7 or G20, and you know, of which these countries are members. In that sense, my objective was to look at the role of ideas. Of course, as a as a postdoc, I was looking at it from both a theoretical perspective as well as you know, practical viewpoint, uh, looking at the shifts in climate diplomacy positions and how have different ideas around especially equity, justice, uh, about civilizational notions or indigenous knowledge in some cases, which is, of course, not very commonly represented, even in the case of emerging economies, unfortunately, even though uh, these countries are known for their indigenous communities and indigenous knowledge on climate change as well. However, this is not represented well. So there are so many ideational aspects, also geopolitical notions of what does responsibility mean in climate governance. The fact that, you know, most of these countries wanted to become a part of the solution at one point and wanted to show themselves as responsible powers in the international order. So all these different ideas sort of merged together to shape the positions, their positions in climate diplomacy over a period of time. So I, I wanted to kind of see how did it evolve. So for me personally, of course, I took India as a case study because I felt, again, this evolution is something that has not been explored much. There are, of course, a few important works in this area, but in terms of a theoretical and idea, you know, looking at the ideas, as I mentioned, is something that has not been explored much. So I looked at the two administrations during this period, uh, the Manmohan Singh government and the Narendra Modi government, and see how have the positions evolved. So it was very interesting for me because, you know, the fact that many things that happened once Narendra Modi uh, became the prime minister of the country, it's kind of a continuation of what happened before that. It was not like a break and a new beginning. In that. So of course, a lot of things changed as well, but it is something that was put in motion before that. So this is broadly about my book. 
And uh, interestingly, Rutledge got in touch with me after, you know, I attended the Earth System Governance Conference. So which is why I feel conferences become so important where you get access to different editors and uh, different publications and, you know, publishing houses who will be uh, looking at what you presented and if they are interested in the topics that you presented. And of course, because ESG is it's all about social scientists presenting on different topics of environment, and climate and sustainable development and so many other uh, aspects of, you know, water, food. So, of course, this was something that Routledge was clearly interested in. And I felt, okay, this is something that I can pitch to them as an idea. And I had a really nice editor as well, who was very helpful at the beginning in thinking about the topic and writing the proposal. And how do you how do I really present it? Because, you know, I'm sure you know this as well. When you write a book, you know, the audience is very important. Who, who really you're targeting, right? So is it students of international relations? Is it academics? Is it policymakers? Is it non-governmental organizations and think tanks? So it's always a question of who you are really targeting and how much space, for instance, you need to put aside for theory itself. Now, this is something that I learned during the process that theory is important. But then this is not going to be the main part of your uh, book, unlike your PhD, where, you know, this is something very important. So I had to sort of cut it down and learn about the process itself and going through the research proposal, editing with your editor, knowing what what the publishing house wants. And also kind of, you know, understanding the importance of word count and uh, references, you know, how do I put across all these things? So this this was a process in itself and it was quite long, you know, honestly, and it was excruciating at times that, OK, why is this not working out? Why am I not able to write it the way it should be? Of course, it was excruciating at some point, but then I think in the end, when you have a good editor and when you have a good team to work with, it becomes much smoother kind of reminds me of my own experience too. Like you said it's a very long process. Um, I think some of the important points that you've mentioned is identifying your target audience from the onset, right? Um, if I would have gone back to my process, that's something that I felt that I could have given more um, thought or attention to. And also this, the difference between the PhD and the book. That's really quite challenging in this process. And I'm very glad to hear that you have very good relations with the editor and the publisher. So I think this is also important point for uh, those of you who are looking into publishing your, you know, your research work to really identify those people who will help you along the way and who will really uh, want to see you publish this uh, certain academic piece. Thank you for sharing that experience with us, Natashri. And I just want to kind of follow up what you've mentioned about your book um, because I find this really interesting because as you've mentioned, is quite underexplored in this type of research and also in these policy discussions. I'm sure you're following many of these high-level policy discussions about climate change and how they can be more inclusive, right? I'm wondering if you've noticed a shift in this intergovernmental organizations being more receptive of this, you know, emerging perspectives, especially from countries like India, Brazil, and so on and so forth. Are they more receptive now than before? For and as an academic, are you satisfied with this progress? I'm not satisfied, of course, <laughs> because I think this is just the beginning. And of course, uh, as I as I mentioned, like since the Copenhagen summit, there's been a shift 
of course, uh, with the basic grouping emerging, you know, with Brazil, South Africa, India, and China emerging as this one group with, you know, relatively more like resources, better GDP, and of course, increasing emissions as well. You know, with these kind of characteristics, of course, the the onus on these countries to really act upon climate change has grown over a period of time. So the idea is that, you know, these countries cannot just hide behind the principle of historical responsibility or CBDR, RC. It's not enough. They still have to uh, commit to some kind of emissions uh, reduction targets, if not an, uh, an absolute emissions reduction targets, at least a carbon intensity reduction targets, which is what India and China, for instance, did in the, at the Copenhagen summit. Of course, the Paris Agreement has changed the entire order of how climate governance has been going on uh, in the sense that it has moved into a sort of a bottom-up approach where countries themselves come up with their uh, nationally determined contributions and then achieve them over a period of time, of course, with monitoring and review and this five-year sort of uh, period, you uh, ratchet up your ambition and all of that. So I think this shift in the approach towards climate governance also has taken place in a way because of the pressure from the developing countries, particularly the emerging economies, who I feel have a much bigger say in what goes on. And you just can't avoid the largest emitter, China, or the third largest emitter, India, anymore in these conversations. And you have to bring them on board. But at the same time, you have to remember that these countries do not have historical responsibility uh, as of now to creating the problem in the first place. So there is still a strong sentiment of equity and justice, especially in a country like India, where the per capita emissions is very, very low, even today, probably never going to go above the European countries in the longest period of time. So it becomes a moral, ethical, and, and probably I would say the most legitimate principle based on which climate governance needs to or global climate governance needs to proceed from here as to equity and justice need to be reinstated in how things go. And this is something that is related to climate finance, uh, which is, uh, as we all know, there are so many broken promises, which obviously lead to a sort of mistrust between countries, especially emerging economies and the developing countries, least developed countries. Uh, who are still waiting for all that promised finance for the longest period of time, which hasn't come their way. Uh, or even if when climate finance comes, it's mostly in the form of loans and not grant, uh, which also raises questions about the nature of uh, support that is coming from the Global North countries. So these are big problems. Loss and damage is a big issue, which is still not being resolved, although some developed countries like Germany are slowly sort of shifting their position and showing that a keenness to establish at least a financing facility for loss and damage, we know that most countries, including the United States and others, are not going to be ready for this. So this is something, a big problem. So uh, emerging economies like India, uh, who have not really uh, talked about loss and damage much in the past, of course, they have endorsed it uh, and said that, yes, uh, you know, we support the developing countries in this regard. But with the increasing number of heat waves in India, the floods that have happened recently in Pakistan uh, and other problems that developing countries in, particularly, uh, in particular have been facing, it's very clear that the push for loss and damage will be much, much stronger this year. So, yes, uh, I would say that things have improved over a period of time, that you have greater kind of representation from the global south uh, in how decisions are made. 
but it's still not enough. And we have seen that in many ways, there are still a lot of gaps in uh, governance when it comes to integrating the perspectives and the interests, particularly of the global south. Um, I definitely echo the sentiment that you shared, especially coming from the global south as well. And you mentioned about the loans, and sometimes these loans have you know conditions attached. So again, that's another problem to it. So um, for those of you who don't have a copy of uh, the Nashri's book yet, it's a very uh, important and key uh, reading about this topic. So I really encourage you to to get a hold of her book or ask your librarians to get a copy. And I will link in the show notes where. Where they can purchase your book, The Nashri. Thank you for that. Let me backtrack a little bit again to the publishing experience. We already uh, kind of talked a little bit about some of the challenges, right? How long it was. And you've given us some of the, I think, um, important notes for future authors to keep in mind when they plan to publish their book. So in your publishing experience, is there anything that you wish you could have done otherwise? Yeah, I think I wasn't prepared well enough (laughs) mentally for the process. And I think that is something that everybody needs to understand that this is not like a fast track process. You will miss a lot of deadlines possibly because, you know, the writing process itself is not something. I mean, of course, it's organic and it's not something that just happens when you want it to work. So you need to be very patient with yourself. And I think mentally, I was not prepared, especially because I was also working at the same time. And I and after my research, when I collected all the data, I did my interviews. I did, you know, most of the work with respect to data collection and had, uh, you know, some sort of a structure in place. But by that time, I was like back in India after my postdoc and I had to like sit down and finish uh, the latter half of my book where most most of the chunk of the material was. So I was also working, I was teaching. So it's additional work. So it's always a question of when are you going to devote time to this book? So I think that is my first suggestion that when you start the process of writing a book, make sure that you can allocate some time to the book at some point, because otherwise it's something that keeps getting lumped up in the end. And, you know, you just get pressurized to it much faster than you originally were prepared for. Uh, that is one thing. As, as I mentioned, there's also a question of choosing the target audience. And I think that is very important when we look at the language of the book. What kind of language are we using? Don't end up using a lot of jargon, for instance, which academics are very much used to when they're writing their academic journal articles. But in, when it comes to books, we have to be very careful about choosing what kind of words, what kind of sentence constructions uh, are more amenable to a larger audience. And I think that that is very important because this is not going to be read by just academics. For me, like I felt that I was not really prepared for the process after the book is published. <laughs> you know, so I felt that I was totally like underprepared and I, I, I didn't know what to do with this book now. OK, I have a book in place and I started discussing it with some people whom I know. And for some scholars who know me, uh, they saw the book and, you know, we had some sessions as well where I discussed the book's findings and a couple of uh, people also wrote book reviews. But I felt that I did not do much to promote the book. So, I, you know, sometimes we have this problem of underselling ourselves. 
and underselling our work, our research findings, saying, oh, you know, probably this is not good enough to be uh, promoted. So I think we also have to be careful about that process where we, you know, should not be underselling ourselves. We should look at our work as uh, as a sort of achievement. And I feel that's also an important part of writing a book. It's not just enough to produce the book and that's it. Like, you know, you also have to be able to uh, promote it and uh, make sure uh, that people respond to it and react to it, you know, let you know their feedback, because uh, that will be an important journey for your next book whenever that happens. Yeah, exactly. And I also did not prepare much about my, you know, how I'm going to promote my book. And I remember how anticlimactic it was. <laughs> like, okay, I got the book, I got the copy, so now what? Although some, I have to mention um, too that Routledge, for example, and the other publishers, they have all this, yeah. you know, packages that, yeah, that they provide us that if we want to use those packages or those services to promote our books, um, we can do so. But you touch a very crucial point there about, you know, we often undersell ourselves. And I think we're kind of conscious about self-promotion. This I have uh, noticed in general. But then if you will think about this uh, specific um, aspect of your work and how it can um, contribute to improving your future work. So, you know, maybe we can get away from that idea of this is just self-promotion. But this is really like how we improve our research, how our work evolves throughout. And this underselling, I also have noticed that uh, quite common for, you know, scholars from the Global South. And in this podcast, I have mentioned several times that I really encourage everybody that if you have, you know, your work that you want to promote, do so. And I also encourage everybody that if you know other people who have this like work that really inspires you or um, important to your own work, then you can also promote that as well. You know, as a community, we can do this promotion. So it's not really self-promotion, but community promotion, maybe that's better. We talk in this podcast too about some of the challenges that we encounter um, as scholars from the Global South in academia. So I'm also curious, Dineshri, of what are your thoughts on these issues and if there's anything like, you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I experience as a scholar from the Global South. And, as a, and I feel it's also different when you do your PhD from a university in the Global South, which does influence your uh, worldview in a big way. And also how you are able to access many academic networks or other spaces where you want to see yourself and be able to talk to people within that network and learn from them. And this becomes much more difficult for a Global South scholar who, who has done PhD or who's doing PhD in the Global South. I mean, somebody who, who does a PhD from the Global North, but is from the Global South may still find it easy uh, because at least the university systems and other systems may be more supportive in terms of giving funding and other things. So the, the university system in India, of course, uh, they are supportive. I'm not saying they're not supportive, but they don't have enough resources, for instance, to support your travel to various conferences. So like, for instance, I've never attended an International Studies Association conference so far. And it's primarily because I never got the funding to go all the way to U.S. or Canada, which is where most of these uh, conferences are organized. I've been lucky that uh, ESG, the Earth System Governance, has been much more supportive in that sense, uh, providing me conference fee waivers and other things. And also, you know, some really nice academics who are willing to sort of accept uh, me as part of the projects, and then that would give me that opportunity to travel to attend conferences. 
So I think one of the biggest problems is, of course, resources. You know, there are not enough project funding or resources, uh, conference support, which obviously puts you at a disadvantage uh, in a big way. And the second aspect, which I found is very different from for a Global South scholar, is the the academic cultures are very different. Uh, how you are uh, kind of integrated into the Indian academic system will be very different from how the academic culture works, say, in Germany or the Netherlands or the United States or Australia. You know, it's very different. Uh, even for that matter, you know, what do we exactly focus on? Is methodology more important, theory more important, or the practical aspects are more important? It kind of varies. I've seen that this is something that is very critical to our own PhD and research journey within the Global South, because most of these ideas have evolved in the Global North. Most of the theories that we deal with have evolved in the Global North. So we are trying to sort of adapt them into our context and seeing, oh, how does this really work in the Global South context? There is the dilemma of how you apply these different lenses in the Global South and also sort of getting used to the as I mentioned, the academic cultures and the settings itself, which are so different from each other. Of course, with, you know, this globalized kind of educational systems and exchange programs between universities, especially Global North, Global South, you can see that there is more sort of integration happening and, you know, trying to learn from each other's processes and things like that. Like from my personal experience, like in India, for instance, you can just walk to your supervisor at any point in time. Like, you know, that's how that's how it works. But uh, you know, I know that that is not how it works here in, in the global north where, you know, you have to take an appointment, which is fine. It's a That's what I'm saying. It's a very different system where you have to learn those things in a very different way. There are, of course, challenges uh, with respect to our thinking, like I mentioned, underselling. So this is something I always felt the kind of research I'm doing is not up to the mark that you know somebody a phd or anybody like in the global north is doing you know so i feel that oh this is this is way ahead of what i'm doing this is also a problem of access to research funding and access to like just having uh, you know a lot more subscriptions to journals or books uh, in your own library for instance uh, and i think even here of course indian universities are getting better uh, in terms of subscriptions and other things, but still there are many, many journals and books that you do not have access to. And this is where the publishing houses also need to find a way of making sure that knowledge is kind of accessible to researchers from the global south who cannot pay these huge sums for a single article, for instance. So the, so the underselling happens at, at that level as well, that you know you feel that your research is inferior to the kind of work that is going on methodologically and kind of theoretical sort of work that is happening in the global north countries or where uh, researchers are working in a, on these topics and have been able to find ways to add value to the research itself and you feel that your work is not up to the snuff. Of course, that may not be true and that's maybe like just kind of a mental block again, which leads you to feel that your work is inferior or it's, it's not something that matches the, or it's not something that meets all the criteria and requirements of what good research should look like. So uh, I think we all need to find ways to like communicate with each other. And like you mentioned, community of researchers where we are able to talk to each other, find out about each other's works and talk about what are the problems that we face. And it's not just about research kind of 
problems, you know, about writing and reading, but also in terms of the psychological aspects of research. Just be confident about what you're doing and also know what your uh, shortcomings are at the same time. And don't like get stuck with these shortcomings so that you can overcome them. And, and there is no question of trying to say that this is the only process that works because I think there's multiplicity and diversity in research processes. And we have to acknowledge that research works in different ways with different objectives. Thank you, Dinesh, for this really intellectual conversation. By the way, I've learned a lot from your research and also from your book. And thank you so much for encouraging us to, you know, strengthen our community ties and overcome all these challenges together, we'll, which will make it easier. And the importance of really involving our allies, supporting the work of Global South Scholars. Thank you, Dinesh, for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please consider leaving a comment or rating at iTunes or any of your preferred podcast hosting platforms. For details about upcoming episodes and how to support the Scholars Unbound project, visit daliasimangan.com slash scholarsunbound with the link in our show notes.